My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here, and I just want to wish you a happy Resurrection Sunday. Now, the early church had a tradition, and they would say, Christ or He is risen, and then the response would be what? He is risen. That's right. Christ is risen. That was weak. Let's try that again. I'll even put it up here for you so you can even read it. So if you passed fifth grade, you should be able to do this. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Excellent. Now look at your neighbor and say, man, you look good. Because I've never seen so many sports coats in this place in my entire life. But there's more ties, more sports coats and freedom today than I've ever seen. So look at your neighbor and say, you look good. Now look at your neighbor and say, who cares? That's not the reason we're here. We are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are here to to lift him up. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's the text we'll be in this morning. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that you are here for a reason. I want you to know that, that you are right where God wants you to be. I believe that God has made an appointment for each and every one of us here this morning. I believe that he has intentionally brought us here this morning. And you could not be in a better place on this Resurrection Sunday than in God's house, in the church, gathered with God's people. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, why am I here? Why did I come today? Perhaps you were coerced. Maybe maybe you had a neighbor, a co-worker, a spouse that just kept asking and asking, wouldn't leave you alone, so they kind of forced you to be here. So you're here uh, against your own will, but I'm still glad you're here. Some of you may be here and you're curious. Perhaps you're exploring faith and you're, you're, you're wanting to learn more about this Christian faith, more about what this whole Resurrection Sunday is all about. I'm glad you're here as well. Today, what we're celebrating today is the most important day in the Christian calendar. What we're celebrating today is the most important day that ever occurred. You see, if there's one message, if there's one message that that sums up the Bible, that there's one message that that takes the entire text of the Bible and consolidates it into, into the most important thing, it is the gospel. And if there's one message within the gospel that is vital, that cannot be overlooked, it is the good news of the resurrection. And so I am super excited that you are here this morning because the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one thing that all of Christianity depends upon. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one thing that gives credibility to everything that Jesus taught and everything that the Bible says. Here's a great way to put it. Christianity stands or falls on the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christianity, our faith, stands or falls on the historical bodily resurrection resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is how important the resurrection is. And as a follower of Jesus, I believe that Jesus was historically crucified on a cross. I believe that Jesus died and was buried in a tomb. And I believe on that Sunday morning, he physically resurrected from the grave. Now, if that is true, and I believe that it is, then we have all the reason to hope. If that is true, and I believe that it is, then you and I can rest assured as Christ's followers that our sins are forgiven, that our eternity is secure, and we can be confident in our salvation. If the resurrection is true. However, If the resurrection is not true, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then all of this is a complete waste of time. And you and I should be at home watching the Masters right now.
if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So in your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to pray before we read God's Word, because it is God's Word, not my Word, that is important today. It is God's Word that changes our lives, not my words. And so I'm going to read God's Word this morning. I'm going to pray before I read God's Word, that He would speak to us through His Word. Heavenly Father, we come before You, and we acknowledge that that it is Your Word that changes us. It is Your Word that transforms us. And so, Father, I pray that as we open your word, as we read your word, God, you would speak to our hearts individually. You would speak to each person that is in this room today and each person that is watching online. And I pray, Father, that the resurrection will become so real to each and every one of us that our lives would be transformed. That our lives would be made new. And we would see the power of of the resurrection of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And it's in His his name we pray. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this. Now, I want to remind you. So again, he's saying, listen, all these things I've written, everything we've talked about up until this point, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. The gospel that you received in which you stand. And by now which you are being saved. If, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. So that's an important point. Paul is saying, listen, are you holding fast to the gospel? Because if you're not holding fast to the gospel, then you have believed in vain. So he's saying there's a way that you and I can believe but believe in vain. And we're going to discover that later on this morning. Verse 3. For I delivered to you that which is of first importance. So if you want to underline anything in your Bible today, this is it. This is the first importance. This is what Paul says. This is the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. Paul says that is the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And then verse 5, then he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some of them, though, have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now I want to skip to verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15. And it says this, now... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, listen to verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen to what Paul says, in fact Christ has been raised from from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam. Through Adam we all entered into death, separation from God. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So here we have Paul describing two different groups of people. And I believe those are two different groups. Those two groups of people are represented here today. 
both in this room and watching online. Those two groups of people are those that are standing firm in their salvation, those that are standing firm in their faith, those who who are solidified, those who are, are grounded in their faith, and those who have believed in vain. Those are the two types of people that Paul describes. Now here's one thing about Paul. Paul definitely could not be accused of being politically correct. Notice what he does in this text. Paul preaches a message of exclusivity. He doesn't preach a message of inclusivity. He doesn't say, oh, we're all in it together. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. It doesn't matter what you hold on to as long as you hold on to something. You can have your way of salvation. I can have my way of salvation. It doesn't really matter. It's not what Paul says at all, is it? In fact, Paul draws a clear distinction between people who claim to be his brothers and yet believe in vain, and those who are his brothers, who are holding fast to the gospel that he preached. And perhaps you're here this morning, and, and you came into this place, and, and maybe you're new, maybe you've been here for a long, long time, and, and, and maybe this is your church home, and, and, and you, when you walk in the door, this feels like family. Anybody like that? Just, this place just feels like family. Here's what I want you to know. Whether you're spiritually unresolved, whether you're seeking and exploring faith, or whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ who calls this place home, I want you to know that you are welcome here. I want you to know this is a place where we invite you to come as you are. This is a place where we want you to explore faith, where we want you, as a follower of Christ, to grow in your faith. But I suspect that there are some of you here, when you got here this morning and you walked in, you're thinking, man, there's something weird about these people. Like there's just something off. But maybe it's the fact that they have something that I don't. And the answer is yes. Yes, we do. And we're going to talk about that. Now, others of you are here thinking, man, thank goodness I'm a Christian. Whew. I'm just glad that I'm a Christian. I may not go to church very often. I may not practice my faith much. But I'm here today. What more does that guy want? Here's the reality. 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. 70% of Americans claim to be a Christian. And yet, only 10% actually think and act and live according to biblical principles. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? To think that 70% of the people around us say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And yet, only 10% actually live as a Christian, actually walk as a Christian. And so Paul, I believe, would ask one thing of us this morning. And that one thing is this. Are you holding fast to the gospel that he preached? In other words, are you holding fast, fast to the truth of the gospel? Are you firm in your faith? That's the question that Paul would ask each and every one of us. And sadly, the reality is that many who claim to be Christians, many who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus, simply aren't. That's the sad reality that we face. Is that many who claim to know Jesus, many who claim to be Christians, are not. Sure, they go to church occasionally. More than Christmas and Easter. But the reality is, when it comes to standing firm in their faith, when it comes to walking with God, when it comes to having confidence in their salvation, things just don't add up. They fall into that 10% of people who, or that 60% that of people who are just like, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but my life doesn't reflect it. I don't live any of it out. And so this morning, what I want us to do and what I'm going to do is I want to draw a clear distinction. I want to draw a clear line this morning. Not between Christians and non-Christians. That's not the line I want to draw. I want to draw a clear line between Christians who stand firm in their faith, who are walking with God, who are confident in their salvation, and everyone else. Can we do that this morning? 
That's the distinction I want to draw. Those that are standing firm in their faith, those that are walking with God, those that are confident in their faith, and everybody else. Because I believe that's what Paul's doing here. Because Paul issues this warning. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in, in verse 2, he issues this warning. Right at the beginning, he says, he says, I've preached this gospel to you. You're being saved. You're holding fast to the word unless, there's the warning, unless you have believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. That's the warning Paul gives. Jesus, or James, Jesus' half-brother, gives a very similar warning. In his letter, James says, you believe in God. That's good. You do well. And then he says, here's the warning. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you and I can be sitting here this morning, and we can believe, and yet believe in vain. We can believe and be categorized by James with the demons. Yes, they believe in God. They believe that God is one. And yet, there's nothing different about their lives. And that's the warning. So let me put my cards on the table this morning. I want you to consider today becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to cross that line of faith, that divide, and I want you to make your faith sure. I want you to have a solid footing in your faith. I want to give you a chance to be firm in your faith confident in your salvation, and to begin to walk with God. Because that's what Jesus is inviting each and every one of us to. And the good news of the story and the life of Jesus is that the events of his life that occurred nearly 2,000 years ago have a major impact on our lives today. What did Paul say was the first importance, the most important thing? What is the gospel according to Paul? He's told us in verse 3. For I deliver to you what is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, historians are very clear about two things when it comes to Jesus. One, that he existed. And two, that he was crucified. Now there's a theology out there today that says that the resurrection and that, that Jesus is just a mystical resurrection. It was just a spiritual resurrection. That Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. But historic, and, and did, Jesus didn't even die. He just was a, a mystical figure. But the reality is, secular historians will agree on the fact that Jesus existed... And that Jesus was crucified. No serious scholar, no serious person would doubt those two events. That Jesus lived and that Jesus died. Nobody's going to argue with you and, and be taken serious by saying that no, Jesus didn't really live and Jesus didn't really die. You don't have to go to the Bible to find evidence of that. You can go to, to historians in the first century and they will write about the fact that there was a man from Nazareth named Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah and was crucified on a cross. Historically, we can prove that. We can, we can know that. But the reality is, the fact that a man lived 2,000 years ago, and the fact that this man claimed to be a, a great teacher, does not make front page news, does it? The fact that he was a great teacher is not going to trend on social media today. The fact that, that Jesus reported to work miracles is not totally unusual. There are many people who have claimed to perform miracles. The fact that Jesus founded a religion is not even unique to him. Although I admit that one's a little harder to do. Most of us can't go and start our own religion. But others have, not just Jesus. And the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross, though he claimed no fault of his own, is not even unique to Jesus. Thousands of people were crucified on crosses back then. So none of that makes Jesus unique. None of that would make us get up and come to church this morning. None of us would cause us to, none of that would cause us to skip the masters this morning. None of that. However, there is one fact 
about Jesus that makes him unique. There is one thing that sets Jesus apart from every great teacher, from everyone who claimed to, to perform miracles, from everyone who was crucified on a cross, from every great figure in history, and that one fact is the empty tomb. Even secular historians admit that the tomb was empty. You ever thought about that? Like, they don't know how. They may not, have, they may not believe what well, we believe that Jesus rose from the grave, but they can't deny that the tomb was empty. They can't deny that when, when, on that Sunday morning that Jesus was not in the grave that day. So we've seen that there's no doubt that Jesus lived. There's no doubt that Jesus died on a cross. There's no doubt he was buried, and there's no doubt of the empty tomb. We can prove that historically. We can prove that biblically. We can look at multiple ways of discovering the truth of those things. We also have no doubt about the movement that started in the days and the months and the years after his death and after the empty tomb. And a movement that continues on to this day. And a movement that claims that Jesus has risen from the dead and is worthy of our worship. We can't deny that. Even if you're skeptical this morning, the fact that we're sitting here, we can't deny that the movement is still going on. Because something dramatic happened to transform Jesus' disciples. Something dramatic happened. There were, were these men who were cowards. That Listen, they ran away when Jesus was arrested. They were nowhere to be found when Jesus was crucified. And yet, this group of cowards, this group of wimps, become bold preachers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That something had to have happened to these men to cause them to say that this man, Jesus, was crucified and God raised him from the dead and we are all to worship him because he is God. You don't go from running scared to proclaiming a resurrection just because you want to, right? There ha something had to have happened. It's not just a message you wake up and make up. You don't just come up with that. In fact, this is what's amazing about Jesus' disciples. They go to the very people in the very city that Jesus was crucified. And we're going to see this when we go into our study of Acts beginning next week. But they go to the very people in the very city where Jesus was crucified. Not 50 years later, but 50 days later. And they proclaim and look Jesus' accusers in the eye. And they say, you killed him. God raised him from the dead. Repent of your sins and follow him. That's some serious boldness right there. Some serious transformation that goes with these men. And they claim that they saw him alive. Now, one thing is certain. If the Roman and Jewish authorities could have led us to the body of Jesus, they would have done so. All they had to do was will out Jesus' dead body and say, these guys are idiots. Here's his dead body. And they 100% would have done so. It doesn't make sense for them to allow these delusional followers of Jesus to propagate a myth about an empty tomb. And yet, the Jewish and the religious authorities never produced a body. So what other options do we have? What options do we have to place our faith in? If we're not going to place our faith in the resurrection, what options do we have? Well, we can believe that the, that the disciples stole Jesus' body. And they made up this lie about his resurrection. And in fact, that, that theory has been around since the resurrection itself. Listen to what Mark says in his gospel. Mark 28, uh, Matthew, sorry, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 11. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard, that's the Roman guard, they went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. What had taken place? The empty tomb. The resurrection. Jesus was no longer there. 
And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, so the religious leaders all gather, they, they, they start talking, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? What's going to happen? So that's what's happening right there. Here's what they decide to do. To give a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Hey, let's pay them off. Let's buy off their testimony. And that's exactly what they do. They say, go tell people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And then they say, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Why did they say that? Because if these Roman soldiers had allowed Jesus' disciples to steal his body, guess what their fate would have been? Immediate execution. And so the religious leaders in Israel, in Jerusalem, pay off the soldiers and they say, we'll cover your backside. You just go and propagate the fact that his disciples stole his body. And they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has spread among Jews to this day. Now, to buy this theory that the disciples stole the body, you have to believe that this group of cowards who had abandoned Jesus at his, at his arrest, who refused to show up at his crucifixion except for John, now go all John Wick and steal the body under the watchful eye of the trained Roman authorities. you got to believe that. That these men somehow sneak past, take over, overcome the Jewish authorities, and then they're willing to die as martyrs to protect the lie. That just doesn't make sense psychologically, does it? Like, why do we lie? We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to benefit ourselves. If you tell a lie, you're doing so so that you can get benefit. Nobody lies just for the sake of lying. Well, maybe some people do, but nobody in their right mind does. You don't just lie for the sake of lying. You lie to protect yourself. You lie to benefit yourself. What benefit is there in dying a martyr? None. And yet Jesus' followers die as martyrs to protect the lie. So we have to believe that these men were lying, that they were lying, and they were willing to be tortured and killed to protect the lie. And here's the remarkable thing. Not one of them broke rank. Not one of them recanted. Not one of them said, ah, we were just kidding. Nobody did. So it makes it highly unlikely that the disciples stole the body. So what other option do we have? We have the option of thinking the disciples were crazy, that they were hallucinating. And, and I guess that's a pretty viable option. I mean, people have seen Jesus in burnt toast, so maybe they were nut jobs. I don't know. Maybe they were crazy. But here's the problem with that. Paul tells us that 500 people saw Jesus at one time. Never in recorded history has there been an, an hallucination that occurred with 500 people at the exact same time. Hallucinations don't work that way. And that didn't, that didn't happen. And then what's amazing is Paul says, listen, if you don't believe us, if you don't believe me, then go ask one of the eyewitnesses. Go ask one of these 500. There's, most of them are still alive, so you can go ask them. And so Paul is showing us that the proof of the resurrection is in the witnesses. The fact that people witnessed Jesus alive, the fact that they saw him after he was crucified, after he was buried, after he rose from the grave, People saw him. And listen, if you were wanting to spread a story and a myth about a resurrection that was either false or fictional, why on earth would you tell people to go and ask the eyewitnesses? You wouldn't. And yet that's exactly what Paul does. It's exactly what he does. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that he appeared. To 500. Most of them are still alive. In other words, go ask them if you don't believe us. 
And the reality is we simply can't ignore the witnesses. Paul lists witnesses by name. He says Cephas first. Cephas was Peter. Why Peter? Because Peter denied Jesus three times after he was arrested. Do you think a man would go from denying Christ simply at his arrest to then preaching to the very people that crucified him 50 days later if he hadn't seen Jesus with his own eyes? No. So he goes, go ask Peter. Then he says, go ask the 12. The 12, those 12 disciples that walked with Jesus, that followed Jesus for three and a half years or so. Those men that were closest to Jesus. He goes, Paul says, go ask them. And if you don't believe them, then go ask the 500 that saw him after his resurrection. But then Paul lists two people that are oftentimes the most fascinating but often overlooked. One was James. Who was James? James was Jesus' half-brother. Now think about this. If your brother, or if people claim that your brother, after he passed away, rose from the dead, what would you be? Skeptical, right? Yeah. If your brother claimed to be the son of God, anybody going to buy that from your brother? No. Son of the devil, maybe, but not son of God. And James was exactly in that place. He, he was skeptical. He didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah when Jesus was alive. And yet, as soon as he sees Jesus face to face after his resurrection, guess what? He believes and he becomes a leader in the church. And then Paul says it himself. He says, Jesus appeared to me. Now, who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was one of the Jewish religious leaders. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul had Christians arrested and killed for believing the resurrection. But what happens after he sees Jesus face to face? Instantly, he follows Jesus. And Paul is just reminding us over and over again that we have to look at the, the witnesses. But Paul's also very clear. And he's clear in this, that if the resurrection did not happen, if Jesus did not rise from the grave in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us that you and I should be pitied more than anyone else on earth. Think about that. The resurrection is so crucial and so critical to our faith that without it, our faith comes crashing down. Without the resurrection, it's like us taking the bottom block out of a Jenga game and everything, all the blocks just come crashing down. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then Christianity, then our faith is a cruel and sadistic hoax. Think about what we've been doing this morning. We've been singing to a dead man if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. We are, I am, we've been praying to a dead man if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. I've been preaching about a dead man if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. We've been worshiping a dead man if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. We've been trusting in a dead man if Jesus did not rise from the grave. So without the resurrection, Christianity is a sick, sadistic hoax. But what does Paul say? In fact, Christ has risen. Paul says it is a fact. He is not dead. He is alive. Every religious leader is dead. Every religious leader, once they died, they're gone. Except for Jesus. He conquered death. He rose from the grave. And he is the only one to have ever done so. So what does the resurrection mean for us? What does it mean for you and I this morning? The resurrection really was Jesus' justification. It was, it was God's stamp of approval on the work of redemption that Jesus has done for us. It was God saying, you know what, I accept Jesus' sacrificial atonement for your sins. His work on the cross is finished. 
and the resurrection is proof that it is done. That's what, that's what the resurrection means, that Jesus died for our sins and He was raised up for our justification. He was raised up so that we can know that our sins can be forgiven. You see, the cross was God's way of satisfying His justice and demonstrating His mercy. God's justice, God's wrath had to be satisfied. Sin had to be atoned for. So what does God do? He sends His one and only Son to die in our place, to take our sin upon Himself, to satisfy God's justice, and to demonstrate to us His mercy. See, it was, it was, it was our sin. It was my sin. And it was your sin that required Jesus' death on the cross. It was my sin, and it was your sin that must be atoned for. And it was Jesus' resurrection that proves His work on the cross was finished, that it was done, that our redemption can be complete. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according, listen to this, to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to, re to be revealed in the last time. And look at verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. Believe in what? His resurrection. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Peter is showing us, here's the outcome of the resurrection. Here's what happens because of the resurrection. Our sins are dealt with. And you and I are declared righteous before God. We receive Christ's righteousness as a result of the resurrection. We are declared righteous. We are born again. We are made new. We, our souls are redeemed. We are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. We have a hope for a future that is beyond the grave. We have a hope for now in the transformed life that the kingdom of God dwells within us now. We don't have to, we don't have to wait. We can live new and transformed Today, we have a hope in that. And we have a hope that we have a relationship. We can know God. We can know Christ. And we can love Him even though we don't see Him. Because He is resurrected from the grave. Is that true of you this morning? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you been born again? Have you been redeemed? If not, you can be. You can be born again. Your sins can be dealt with. Your sins can be forgiven. All because of Jesus and His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. And here's the reality for each and every one of us this morning. The reality is that we all have to do something with Jesus and His resurrection. Every single one of us that are here in this room, every single person watching online, you have to do something with the resurrection. Now the reality is, you can reject Jesus. Every single one of you have every right in the world to reject Jesus. And you can do that today. That can be your choice today. You can reject Jesus. Or, you can place your faith in Jesus. You can surrender your life to Jesus. You can come to Him in faith and believing that His death on the cross and His resurrection was sufficient for your salvation. You can absolutely place your faith in Jesus. But here's what you cannot do. You cannot ignore Jesus. We don't have that option. Ignoring Jesus is not an option. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he goes on to say, 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But then look at the last question he asked. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you personally believe this? That's the question that Jesus is asking each and every one of us. Do you believe that? And how do you believe that? How do we believe that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is sufficient? How do we place our faith in Christ? Becoming a Christian is a matter of uniting yourself with Christ. It's a matter of putting your trust in Him. It's a matter of believing that His death, His burial, and His resurrection is sufficient for your salvation. It's a matter of confessing Jesus as Lord. It's a matter of believing that Jesus did all these things for us, that our sins are forgiven, and it's going to be evidenced by our transformed lives. Look at, listen to what, what Paul says in Romans 10. We've been in Romans 15. Let's go back to Romans 10. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 9. And this is the message of salvation that he's given. And he says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here's what Romans 10 is making abundantly clear. The salvation is not based simply on a recognition that Jesus is Savior it is based upon a confession that Jesus is Lord. See, that's the difference that Paul was talking about of those who have believed in vain. They didn't confess Jesus as Lord. They said, oh, he's my Savior. He died for me. That didn't transform me. That didn't mean anything to me. Why? Because they believed in vain. There's no need to really overcomplicate this, folks. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, are you ready to confess Jesus as Lord? Are you ready to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Yes, we know that salvation is for those who believe. We don't. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. You don't work for your salvation. We believe, we trust, we place our faith in Christ. But that belief, that trust, that faith always results in obedience. You can't say that we believe Him if we don't obey Him. The reality is if you believe Him and don't obey Him, you really don't believe Him, right? You believe in vain. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's not talking about some vague belief where there's no repentance, where there's no changed life, where there's no expectation of obedience. That's not what he's talking about at all. He is reminding us, yes, salvation is a gift to all who receive it. We can't earn it. And it is received by faith. It is received by a heart that says, I believe, I place my faith, I place my trust in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sin rose from the grave as my Savior, and my life belongs to Him as my Lord. That's what Paul means in Romans 10. If we confess Him as Lord. Because here's the reality. If Jesus is Lord, you're not. You can't have two lords of your life. If Jesus is Lord, then you are not. And so this morning, I want to invite you to receive Jesus as Lord, to confess Jesus as Lord, to believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, how do we do that? It's through faith. But I put up here just a simple idea of what this looks like this is not something magical it's not something you recite if you're reciting this like you recite the you know some poem 
then you're believing in vain. I just I put this so you could read it while I say it, so you can acknowledge it if this is what you want to believe. But it says this, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your Son. I believe that when He died, He died for my sin. I believe that He rose from the dead and was seen. And in this moment, I place my faith in His death on the cross as the payment for my sin. I surrender my life to you. That's making Him Lord. He is my Lord. And I want to spend the rest of my life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that's your desire, I don't want you to recite those words. But I want you to speak those words to Jesus in your own words. I want you to surrender to Him as Lord. To confess Him as Lord. Yes, we believe in our heart that His payment on the cross satisfied God's judgment. That He died for our sins that he rose again for our justification. We, we believe all of that in our heart, but we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that confession is a confession of his lordship, not my own. It means that I am no longer in control of my life. He is. It means that I am no longer leading my life. He is. It means that I am no longer Lord of my life, I am no longer sitting on the throne of my life, but Jesus is. And if that's your desire, then you can surrender to Him today. And you can, and your sins can be forgiven, and all those things we've talked about this morning can be true of you. Now, one of the things that that demonstrates that that is a profession of our faith, of our of our surrender is is what we call baptism. Baptism is is an is the first act of obedience as a follower of Christ. Why? Because baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism signifies the fact that we have surrendered our life to Him. That He is our Lord. That's what baptism pictures. That's what it signifies. It signifies that we are dead with Christ, that we've been buried with Him, and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. And the reality is that that maybe some of you are here this morning and you've not been baptized. But the reality is all of us have a decision to make today. All of us have a confession to make. Some of us have already confessed Jesus as Lord. We've already been baptized. And what we get to do is our confession today is just... a, a a celebration of the fact that He is our Lord. Some of us this morning, you've been saved in the past, but you've never been baptized. You placed your faith in Jesus, but you've never followed Him in obedience. And you have to seriously examine your life and say, have I believed in vain? Because if that's what He calls me to do, is to be baptized in obedience to Him, is my confession of Him as Lord a true confession. You have to examine your own heart. I can't answer that for you. But I do invite you to, to walk in obedience. And some, maybe perhaps today, you're, you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus today. And you need to say, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Him. I want to be obedient to Him. So I'm going to have us just a time to, to, to close out in prayer. Because I don't, I don't want you to believe in vain. I want you to leave today with your faith firm with your confidence in your salvation solidified, and begin to walk with God in obedience to Him as Lord. So I want everybody to bow your heads and just pray with me as we seek the Father. And so, I want you to just to pause for a moment and examine your own life. Examine your own self. And just ask yourself, where are you? Have you believed in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and rose again? And have you confessed with your mouth that He is Lord? And listen, if that is you this morning, then rejoice in that. Celebrate in that. And perhaps you're here this morning and, and you've, you've, you've never done that before. You've never confessed Jesus as Lord. 
Perhaps you believed. Perhaps you've thought about it. Maybe you've considered it. But this morning, I invite you to believe that Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, is sufficient for your salvation. And I invite you this morning to confess Him as Lord. Listen, if that's you this morning and you want to confess Him as Lord, if you want to believe, just just slip your hand. We're not doing anything to embarrass you, but if that's you, just slip your hand up. Just if, if, if anybody wants to do that. Amen. Thank you. You simply do that. You come to Him in faith. And so, Father, whatever decisions need to be made here this morning, Lord, I pray that You would speak to each individual heart, each person, that we would not leave here today without dealing with Jesus and His resurrection. Father, the truth and the reality of it is we can, we can ignore Jesus. I mean, we can, we can re- reject Jesus. We can surrender to Jesus and place our faith in Him as our Lord. But we can't ignore Him. And so, Father, we don't want to ignore you, ignore him this morning. We want to deal with whatever your Holy Spirit is leading us to this morning, whether it's to place our faith in him, whether it's to rejoice in the fact that we already know him, or whether it's to be baptized in obedience to him. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to make whatever decision you are calling us to make in regard to Jesus and his resurrection. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. To learn more about freedom, join us on our website at freedombiblechurch.net. We wish you the best day ahead.